In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the, in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. There was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the sea creatures and every living creature that moves with, in, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas. Let birds multiply in the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth creatures, each according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall eat them for food. And so every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God had finished the work that he had done. 
He rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he'd done in creation. This is the word of our Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray again together. Almighty God, Lord, you are the creator of everything we see around us. Lord, even the fact that that we can see is because you created light. And Lord, even as you created light before the sun and the moon, Lord, in this we see that you are light. Lord, we pray that you would help us this morning as we consider your creation. Lord, to see the light of Christ. Lord, to see your sovereignty over all things. Lord, to see that, that in your providence you were creating a place that would be, habit, would be inhabited by us, men and women, the, the crowning glory of your creation. So Lord, we thank you that you have given us eyes to see you in your creation. Lord, those around us who, who, who worship the creature rather than the, than the creator, their eyes are, are blinded and you have, you have given them over to sin. But Lord, we thank you that in the power of your Holy Spirit, you have revealed these truths to us, that you indeed are the God of creation. And so Lord, in your creation, we see you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see you in this account of your creation. For the upbuilding of our faith, for the building of this church, and for the glory of your name. Amen. Have you ever given much thought as to why we have a seven-day week. It's almost universally kept in the, in, around this, this present world and often observed in the ancient world. Throughout the, the world, there's a seven-day week. But have you ever thought about why? Have you ever stopped to think about why there's a seven-day week? Every other time marker in our lives is, is based on astronomical phenomena. We have, have the day, which is, which is the, the, the rotation of the earth on its axis. We have, we have months, which, which are the, 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 the interval between new moons. The year is based on, on an orbital revolution of the earth around the sun. The seasons are based on the, the equinox and the, um, and the solstices. But the week has no astronomical basis whatsoever. Nonetheless, we order our lives around a seven-day cycle. This points back to this first week. Today is Sunday, the first day of the week. Well, what have you got planned for this week? You're probably going to go to work tomorrow and, and eat your meals and spend some time with your family and, and get some jobs done around the house and, and hopefully you'll have a productive week. But as productive as your week is, we can guarantee that it's nowhere near as productive as God was in that very first week. In those six days, God created everything out of Nothing. In six days, God created light. He created the sun, the moon, the stars, the earth, the sky, and he filled the seas and the sky with life. That was the very first week. 
And a plain reading of the Genesis account testifies that God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them in six literal days. While many who reject the Bible's inerrancy and authority theorize that it took millions of years of evolution. But historically, Christians haven't been troubled by the fact that, that it took, uh, that, that, that they've been troubled by millions of years. But what troubled them was the fact that it took six days. Because God did not need a week in order to create creation. He could have done it in a nanosecond. But in God's infinite wisdom, he decided to do it over the course of six days. Again, a plain reading of the Bible reveals six literal days of creation. There's three pairs of days. Again, we're going to be looking at the first three days um, this morning. But, but on day one, you have light and darkness, which is paired with day four, where the, with the creation of the sun and the moon and the stars. On day two, you have the sky and the waters. And then on day five, you have fish and fowl. On day three, you have the land and the seas. And then on day six, animals and man. And then on day three, also we have vegetation. And then on day six, we have men and women created. And that first week culminates in the seventh day, a day distinguished as a day of rest and set apart by God as holy. Now the whole thing, this whole creation account is given to us from the perspective of somebody standing on the earth and describing what, what is happening around them. But again, this, nobody was there to see this. This was revealed by God as the way that he created the heavens and the earth. So again, this morning, we're going to be looking at the first three days, looking at what God did on each day. And we're going to touch briefly on the science, but mainly to show that the creation account is really a more rational explanation than, than evolution. Just as it is more, also more rational than the pagan myths that were circulating when the book of Genesis was written. So the science here is, again, we're going to look at it, but it's not our, it's not our prime purpose. When we study the creation account, as Sinclair Ferguson explains, the author of Genesis does not want you to focus attention on how God did this. What the author of Genesis is concerned about is not the answer to the scientific question, but he is interested in that we raise our eyes up to the fountain and origin of this whole created order and recognize that God brought it into being by a work of infinite divine power out of nothing and simply by his word. So the author of creation doesn't want you to focus on creation, but he wants you to focus on him, the creator. So, so I don't want you to get me wrong here. It's, it's, it's important that we understand that, that God created the world in six days because it's foundational. It's, it's important because if we attempt to explain away the, the clear biblical testimony of God's word, we're undermining the word of God and we're undermining the foundation of our faith. That God did it in six literal days is part of the testimony of scripture, not just here in Genesis 1. In the fourth commandment from Exodus 20.11, we read, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. 
Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So, so there, Moses is, as he's relaying the, the, the commandment, is reverting back, is pointing back to these first six days and, and treating them as a real and literal six days. So we interpret Genesis 1 and 2 as we do any other passage of Scripture according to a, a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic. A literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic. And that's really a technical way of, of saying we take the Bible at its word. We interpret each passage according to the rules of grammar and speech and syntax in its literary and historical context. So, so when we apply these, these hermeneutical, hermeneutical rules to, to the creation account, we can see six literal days. And as I quoted R.C. Sproul last week, one must do a great deal of hermeneutical gymnastics to escape the plain meaning of Genesis 1 and 2. Speaking to as someone, R.C. Sproul at one point had held the, the framework hypothesis. But as, the more he studied God's word, the more he rejected that in favor of a literal Genesis explanation. So again, we're going to see this morning what God did on, the, on these first three days, but, but again, not just, just to look at those things as, as mere facts, but, but to direct our attention and focus on God and on God's power and God's sovereignty over his creation. God is the one who does it all by his powerful command. We're going to be seeing the repetition of God said, God saw, God called, God did it all, demonstrating his power and his authority over all. So the first day, in verse 3 we read, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. God merely spoke light into existence. This was the first Sunday. Now, I, I granted, this is a, we, they, they wouldn't have used the terms that we use today for, for our days of the week, but this was the first day, which Sunday is the first day of the week. This was the first step in preparing the dark earth for life. Jewish commentator Nahum Sarna describes it like this. He says, the divine word shatters the primal cosmic silence and signals the birth of a new cosmic order. Light was created before the sun and the moon. The, the first three days were illuminated by a light source unrelated to the sun. The sun and the moon would, would be given the responsibility on the, the sun and the moon on the fourth day to, to, to shine the light, but that duty was temporary, as we'll see. The fact that light came before the sun is much to the amusement of some evolutionists. But what's happening is that they actually love the darkness and refuse to come to the light. This text implies that the light is from God himself. As Calvin explained, the Lord by, his, by the very order of creation bears witness that he holds in his hand the light, which is able to impart to us without the sun or the moon. So this first light prior to the sun, it, it comes from God. He is that light. And if you, as you read through your Bible, the, the Bible is full of light imagery. It, it shines all the way through the Bible. Light on the first day indicates the, the, the presence of God at creation, and it pointed to his presence with his people. 
just briefly, you can, you can think about how, how the Lord led Israel by a pillar of fire at night, Exodus 13, 21. Or, or think about the tabern- tabernacle menorah with its perpetual light testified to the guidance of God's word and, and a way for Israel in Exodus 25, 37 and Leviticus 24, 2. Or Psalm 104, 1 and 2 that was read for us this morning. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Or Habakkuk 3, verses 3 and 4. God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. And so that trajectory of light all points to Jesus Christ, the true light who is coming into the world. John 1, 4, 5, 9, and 3, 19. Jesus' face shone with light at the Mount of Transfiguration. He appeared to Paul in blinding light. And it points ahead to the fulfillment of all things in Christ, where in the, the new Jerusalem, that the sun and the moon are no longer necessary. Again, their, their responsibility to shine light was temporary. Revelation 21 and verses, verse 23. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. But again, when it comes to unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded their minds to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, 2 Corinthians 4.4. But when God created that light, he declared that it was good. He saw that it was good, and and he separated the light from the darkness. Now, now this runs contrary to the pagan mythologies where, where, uh, where matter is viewed as evil. All matter was, was viewed as, as evil. It was, it was, a, it was a dualism. And so the spiritual was seen as good and matter was seen as evil. And, and really that, that gave license for their, their pagan practices and, and for their immorality because they said, well, well matter is, doesn't really matter because it's evil. But God saw the, 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 the creation of, and said that it was good. In verse five, God called the light day. And the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And here we see God naming day and night. He's revealing his authority over the day and over the night. The reason why we still have a, a day and a night is because God is faithful. The Lord is, is more sure than, than the watchman who waits for the morning. The reason why we have a morning on time is because God is faithful over his creation. As we saw last week, the proponents of the the day-age theory contend that that each day in Genesis 1 relates to an age, possibly as much as millions of years. But not only does this this theory do do little or nothing to, to answer the challenges raised by evolutionists, it ignores the immediate and the brighter and the broader context. The evening and the morning divided the days. The description of each day concludes here where there was evening and there was morning the first day. And so Jews to, to, this day deal, to this day still view the day as ending at sunset, not at midnight. But Victor Hamilton, the commentator, points out that there is actually evidence in the Bible that, 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 that the day was considered to start in the morning. You can see that in, in Genesis 19. 
So, so he says that Genesis 1 might not be referring to, to specifically to a reckoning of the day, but vacant time until morning. The end of a day, the beginning of the next work. But we still need to accept the, the, the words of this text that it was, it was, these were divided days. There were, there were periods of time where God did his work. The second day, Verse six, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. This was the first Monday. The, the Hebrew term that's, that's used here can refer to something like something being spread out like a, like a covering as in like Elihu in Job 37, 8 says, can you like him spread out the sky? So it's, it's like a, a covering above the surface of the earth. And so we, we, we can see the atmosphere is presented like a canopy or a dome that's spread over the earth. And God created the expanse to, to create a division between the waters below from the waters above. Now, there's various theories about this, but some suggest that the waters uh, of the sky refer to, to the clouds and the, the waters below refer to the, the, the water masses. But, but again, it's, it's conjecture. Not really sure exactly what that means here. But this expanse is described as the place where the sun and the moon and the stars were set, verses 14 and 15 and 17, as well as where the birds fly, verse 20. But again, this is all presented from the perspective of an observer standing on the earth and looking up and seeing all, all that is created above him. The heavens are the skies that are, are visible to the human eye, whereas God's abode is in the heavens above but can't be seen. Now, Paul alludes to the, the separation of the expanse in, in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2, when, when he speaks of being called up to the third heaven. And I know I, I wondered for a long time what the third heaven means. And there's been all kinds of, of theologies that have, have sprung from a, they think there's different levels of, of heaven. But, but I believe it's simple. It's simply saying is that there's, there's the skies, the first heaven, then there's space, the second heaven, and the third heaven is, is God's abode. What, what we think of as, as the, the heavenly realm. Yet again, we see that God is, is showing his authority by naming his creation. He calls, he calls his creation here the heavens or the sky. The same word that is used in, in verse 1 when we read that God created the heavens and the earth. Now both of those words appear together, the expanse of the sky or the, about, uh, the expanse of the heavens in, in verses uh, 15 and 17 and 20. But again, we see that there's repetition. There was evening and there was morning the second day. Now, the emphasis here is on the fact that God alone rules the heavens, that he, he rules his creation. Again, this is contrary to, to Baal in Babylon, the Babylonian religion, who is seen as a, a god of, of, of storm and rain. The heavens and all that is in them is subject to God's providential rule. And God's assessment that it was good is, is given after the third day when the, the final separation of the waters was completed. So again, God alone rules. God alone rules the, the, the heavens. The third day, verse 9, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas and God saw that it was good. This was the first Tuesday. 
On this day, God completed two creative acts. He, He gathered the waters together into seas, so delineating the land mass, and then subsequently he created vegetation. This is the, the, the final uh, th- of the third uh, separations of days of one to three where, where God marks out the spheres of, of time and space where life exists. Now prior to the flood, there was probably only one giant land mass. But now the, the waters here are now seen as being under the dominion of God. The seas are, are not independent forces, but are subject to the will of God. We see this also in, uh, in the Gospels where, where Jesus repeatedly calms the storm. And the, the disciples understand what's, uh, and to, uh, well, they're shocked, but they, to, to, they're, they're knowing that something unique is going on here. They say, who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? He was showing his dominion over the seas. And so we can, we can see that, that God can be trusted, that, that we don't have to, to placate him like in, as in the pagan religions, but, but that our God is sovereign and he is faithful in his control of the seas. Verse 11 and, and 12. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees, bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And so the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding their seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. So this is the climax here, that first set of, of three days where God is causing the earth to produce vegetation. And plant life is not as an end unto itself. Plant life prepares the way for the sustenance of animal life. And again, here we see that, that this is this is on the third day. Notice that there's no sun yet. The, the God created plants and, and photosynthesis and all these things, but there is no sun. That would come on the next day. But in this we see that, that, that God is, is in control of the production of the earth. He, he commands the, the land to produce vegetation. The, the land doesn't, doesn't produce it on its own. God empowers it to do so. There's not even a hint here of the pagan idea of Mother Earth. It, it was common among the, the pagan ancient religions to believe that, that all of the reproductive processes of the earth, including that of plants and animals and man, was, was a result of the and dependent on the procreation of the gods. But this God... The triune God of the Bible is the one who empowers the productivity of the earth. Now notice here that there were two kinds of vegetation, plants producing seed and fruit trees whose fruit contains seeds. And this is the first time in the Bible that the word that's translated seed is used. Seed is, as you track through the book of Genesis, seed is a very important term. It, it often refers to offspring, it's tied to, to family generations. Remember that Genesis is divided into 10 toledotes or, or generations and that God promised to bless all of the families of the earth through Abraham's seed. But here speaking of the seed of the plants, these plants reproduce according to their kind. Now the biblical concept of kind is, is different from, from what is, is consider, considered in our day the, the, the term species. 
mankind is, is broad enough to, to include genus and family and order. It's, it's, uh, this idea of, of species is, has really become uh, kind of fluid and, and, and really subjective in, in many respects. But as we, it was, we discussed last week, what's happening here with these, these plants producing seeds after their kind is not evolution. They produce after their kind. They, they don't change into a different kind. There would have been one kind of pine tree. Though natural selection would have produced all different kinds of, all, better be careful with my words here, all different types of pine trees. But there's still only one kind of pine tree. Probably one kind of citrus tree, one kind of stone fruit tree, one kind of wheat, and so on. Now, now there are changes within those kinds, but they don't turn from one kind into being another kind. They reproduce after their kinds. There's not something that, that turned from algae into moss and from moss into grass. There's no evidence of that. And if, if you really stop and think about it, it makes absolutely no logical sense. Even given not just hundreds of millions of years, but billions of years, something is not going to turn into a different kind. In 1994, a, a park officer in New South Wales, Australia, was bushwalking in a forest near the Blue Mountains. And I know some of us have been there. But he discovered a tree that he didn't recognize. And so he brought back a specimen, and it turned out to be a, be a, a species that's unknown to science. Studies revealed that, that this, this tree was actually identical to trees that had supposedly been extinct for millions of years. And I, I remember watching a, a documentary on this, and this, this documentary was based on evolutionary presuppositions, but, but the, the commentator said that, that, well, they described this tree, the, the discovery of this tree as being as astonishing as seeing a Tyrannosaurus Rex walk out of the forest. It was that remarkable that, that this tree would be discovered after supposedly being extinct for millions and millions of years. Again, this strikes a major blow to the theory of evolution. This, this tree that they discovered was, was identical to those other trees. No change from within kinds. And God here on, on this, the end of this third day says he, he saw that it was good. There's evening and there's morning the third day. So yet again, we see, we see that matter is created good, contrary to the pagan religions. So the Genesis account is, is directly opposed to, to all pagan mythologies, even the pagan mythology of evolution. Because God made it all and he's over it all, we can trust him. What we see around us is, is not the process of blind, accidental genetic processes. It has come together by the hand of the sovereign God who created it all and is holding it all together. And so we can trust him. His sovereignty is seen in his providential provision for animals even before the animals were created. They're about to team on the earth and, and God prepared the way for them. And his creation points ahead to, to the creation of man and woman, the, the pinnacle of his creation on the sixth day, but ultimately points ahead to Jesus Christ, the archetypical man, 
the perfect man, the God-man. So as we consider all of these things in, in, in Genesis 1, and even, even here in these, these first three days, we're seeing that God is over it all. And that all of, of history is pointing to its ultimate end in Jesus Christ. So we don't, have to, 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 we don't have to do anything. If you're in Christ, you don't have to do anything to placate God. His, his, his wrath has been placated in Christ. He poured out his wrath on his son in our place. So, so we could trust him. We don't need to, to look to, to blind evolutionary processes. We, we trust that God really is sovereign. And he's really intimately concerned with, intimately cares for his creation. We'll see that even more next week. Let's pray together.